Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We have been in a series entitled Song of Hope. It is in six parts, but in two parts of three and three. And the first two dealt with anxiety and depression, in essence. And last week, we had probably more response than we've had from practically any service that we've done. There was one question that was raised, and so to answer that, there were a few, a number of people had asked who sang and played the keyboard for the song Paralyzed. Uh, and that was a young man that I've known for quite some time named Tal Tomko. So just thought you might want to know that, some people asked. We weren't trying to hide that, but the requirement for what we were trying to shape required a darkened uh, environment, so we weren't trying to, uh, to confuse you in any way. Um, one thing I want to mention from last week is if you are struggling with the issue of depression, talk to somebody. Whether that's a, a family, friend, one of the pastors here at the church, uh, a small group leader, a counselor, uh, but talk to somebody. You don't have to process these things alone. Here's some of the responses we've had. This was a poem that someone had written, and they gave it to me in response to two weeks ago. And they struggle with some of these issues. There isn't a strong one amongst us, and that's okay to speak, because it took me being weak to become a Jesus freak. He didn't die to save the lion. He came to save his sheep. I like that line. He didn't die to save the lion. He came to save his sheep. To save the very people who drove the nails into his feet. To save the very people who say they don't believe. For it was all our sins that nailed him to the cross so deep. To pay a debt they didn't owe so we all could be debt free. The ultimate sacrifice of love from the one from whom all things be. All you have to do is seek with every ounce of your soul. And I promise you this, the unknown becomes known. For he sprinkled every seed that has or ever will ever be sown. But that doesn't mean every, mean every seed will live or be grown. Because evil is a weed that seeks to destroy every seed that's thrown. But there is one light, one way, to help the sown reach their home. I had another friend of mine who was recognizing in the service last week that they had struggled with depression for a significant portion of their life. And they sent me an email with the realization of thanksgiving that because of their relationship with Christ, because they know they have a God that cares for them, that they have been lived free of that uh, for many, many years. And so uh, in a way that brought back the past to them somewhat, but it also made them aware of the freedom that they've been given. Another person after last week wrote a song after Sunday service titled Find Myself. It looks like I'm together when I feel I'm falling apart. I get asked to share my mind when I want to share my heart. It may be in a book or song, or maybe I'm too far gone in this world that has lost itself. 
We live in a world where reality is just perception. We sacrifice authenticity out of fear of rejection. The only thing I know is real is this pain inside I deeply feel for a world that has lost itself. What if I told you I don't have it all figured out? Would your love for me be replaced with doubt? I'm not here to put on a show, pretending to know what I don't know. I just came to find myself. Lost in this sea of people who just see me, how can they know me if I don't know me? We are more than our trophies and scars. They only tell a part of who we are along this journey searching for ourselves. What if I told you I don't have it all figured out? Would you love, would your love for me be replaced with doubt? I'm not here to put on a show pretending to know what I don't know. I just came to find myself. Yet here in these lamentations, a song of hope is found. We are more than just words and pages when we choose to let our guards down. I'm here to tell you I don't have it all figured out. Even if your love for me is replaced with doubt, I'm not here to put on a show pretending to know what I don't know. It's in the truth I found myself. This and other items that said tells me that we are tapping into something that is of huge significance. And so here in this last of this section of three, and I said it gets easier, and it is. Today you're gonna to be you're you're gonna be okay today, all right? Nothing bizarre, strange, or difficult for you for the most part. Um, but the title is a little strange. Um, a Song of Hope in the Midst of Victory. Why would we need hope in the midst of victory? Why would we need to have that? I mean, we're, we're in that exultant high point. How many of you have ever heard of the term a parting shot? Okay, now here's the test. How many of you know where that actually is derived from in history, from a military tactic. You two or three people are my friends. <laughs> it actually comes from another term you may or may not have heard. Parting shot actually comes from the term a Parthian shot. Anybody heard of that one before? Okay, well, I guess we're done today. Um, a Parthian shot was a military tactic used by the Parthian Empire and their light cavalry. Parthian Empire was around 274 BC to 224, I think it was, or 254 BC to 224 AD, so about a 400 year period of time or so. They were the ancient Iranian people. Okay, so you get your positioning in the world at least there. And they were known, and others picked up this tactic as well, the Mongols, a few others did this tactic. And what they would do is when they were retreating, when they were um, running away, when the battle had been lost, now sometimes they faked it, but even when the battle was lost particularly, in running away, they were adept at turning in the saddle and firing back a final parting shot or a Parthian shot. It was something that was fired as you exited the arena and as I say, oftentimes when they were, had actually lost the battle, but it could kill. Uh, the bow being used, and this is an illustration of it, is a compound bow uh, of that time period. And so it had great penetration. The reason I raise this up, and there's a, Samuel Butler has a, a, a poem or a, a line about this. He says, you wound like Parthians while you fly and kill with a retreating eye. There's a number of times, both in life and in scripture, when we 
have a great success or a great victory. And then right after that seems to come an attack or, or a downfall. We've asked those that were going to be baptized on the Sunday to uh, be baptized instead on Good Friday so that we could talk on some things here today a bit. But if we had had that today, one of the things that we always do at our baptismal services is pray over those who have just been baptized because oftentimes the baptismal is a high point. It's a hilltop moment for them. And we find that right afterwards tends to be uh, oftentimes a down point or a point of, of vulnerability or assault. Missions teams, we tell all our missions teams that go out the same thing. You're going to come back and there's going to be a series of letdown, a period of letdown after this moment that you've had. My first true intense moment of depression was ironically when I was first out of the country when I was 15 years of age and, and went to Israel. I had an opportunity uh, leaving at age 15 to, for three weeks, travel. And I was in, in Rome and I was in Athens and I was in Cairo and Amman, Jordan and uh, um, Jerusalem and, and all throughout that place. And I'm seeing all these incredible things that I read about as a kid. We had a little bit of debate whether we, both my younger sister and I would be able to go on this trip or not because of some of the limits that could be there. And so we both argued for it. And I argued that since I knew so much about it, reading-wise, I'd be of help to my parents in understanding. My sister said, since he's read it all, he doesn't need to go. <laughs> Fortunately, we were both able to go. And so I had this wonderful experience for three weeks. And then I came home to Flint, Michigan. And this was a time period where people didn't travel a whole lot. And so trying to explain what I'd seen, nobody cared. Nobody understood it. Nobody could comprehend it. Before, but on top of that, I'm back in this environment that was a very challenging environment to be in. And I found a level of depression uh, unlike anything I'd ever seen or experienced at that point for a solid month of time or two. I would have taken my own life if it hadn't been for my, my, my family, just not wanting to leave them with that mess. And I'd never had that kind of experience before. Now, this isn't always how these things work. But for me, there was a prayer meeting going on, and my father took me to that prayer meeting at the church. And they had a chair in the middle, and whoever was going to get prayed for got sat in the chair. Everybody would pray over you. Scary stuff. They prayed over me, and nothing happened. But the next morning, I woke up with that blackness completely lifted from my heart and my mind. Now, that's not always the case. But that was for that specific moment. His mercies are new every morning. This past week, I have found to be one of the most challenging weeks I've had uh, in, in recent history. Last Sunday was a moment of intensity and, and the presence of God, particularly in the worship that followed. And I knew that there'd be pressures that would come after that. That's why I prepared weeks before for this message of a song of hope in the midst of victory because I knew that those challenges come that way and you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that for the most part we live life in the middle between the hills and the valleys. There are those high points, there are those low points. One poet put it this way, to meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters both the same. To realize that it's not the high points or the low points that define us but for the most part it's how we live life out in the middle. There's a story I've been wanting to tell you for some time, and so I'll share it to you here as we go into this. It's about 
an old man who lived in a small village. He was the poorest man in the village, but he owned the most beautiful white stallion. This story is going to frustrate some of you. For others, it's going to make a connecting point. For those of you who are frustrated, He's a poorest man in the village, but he owned the most beautiful white stallion, and the king had offered him a small fortune for it. After a terribly harsh winter during which the old man and his family nearly starved, the townspeople came to visit. Old man, they said, you can hardly afford to feed your family. Sell the stallion, and you'll be rich. If you do not, you are a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man. A few months later, the old man woke up to find that the white stallion had run away. Once again, the townspeople came and they said to the old man, see, if you had sold the king your horse, you would be rich. Now you have nothing. You are a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man. Two weeks later, the white stallion returned, and along with it came three other white stallions. Old man, the townspeople said, we are the fools. Now you can sell the stallion to the king, and you'll still have three stallions left. You're smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. The following week, the old man's son, his only son, was breaking in one of the stallions and was thrown, crushing both his legs. Townspeople had paid a visit to the old man. They said, old man, if you had just sold the stallion to the king, you'd be rich. Your son would not be crippled. You are a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. Well, the next month, war broke out with the neighboring village. All the young men in the village were sent into the battle, and all were killed. Townspeople came, and they cried to the old man, we have lost our sons. You are the only one who has not. If you had sold your stallion to the king, your son, too, would be dead. You are so smart. And you can guess it. Truly to tell, said the old man. We don't get the final picture on these things, I think, until we actually stand before God in heaven. There needs to be a carefulness in the midst of victory and a caution, a steadfast in the midst of difficulty. And we need to watch out for the Parthian shots as we finish whatever battle or thing we're involved in. I want to just very quickly walk you through three individuals that we talked about last week and expand upon them in a way I haven't before. The first one's Elijah. Uh, we've discussed this before. It's a favorite passage of mine. There's some profound stuff in here. Uh, I don't want to go through the whole detail of it. But he has this victory, fire from heaven. Nobody else has done this before. It's an amazing deal. I mean, honestly, can you imagine just standing there? And, and, and first of all, you've been under oppression from the king and everything else. You've been an outcast from society for, for years and years and years because of your stance for God. But now you're on the mountaintop, a literal mountaintop, Mount Carmel. And, and he's calling down fire from heaven, and it happens. And he crushes it as opponents. What is it wonderful to have a moment when you crush all your opposition, when everyone has to acknowledge that you were right and they were wrong? We rarely get that chance, if ever. But he gets it in front of the entire world and divine uh, um, uh, uh, approval upon him at the same time. He is so wired from this that when the rain that comes that has been held back for so long that there's been a drought on the land, but now comes because of this moment that has happened, that he beats everyone back to, to the city. He runs so fast. He's just wired. This guy is juiced. And then in 1 Kings 19, now Ahab told Jezebel, the original Jezebel, everything Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with a sword. That was the losers lost. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Here's this victory. The enemy's been defeated, but there's this parting shot. There's this Parthian shot that, that Jezebel fires, and it hits him right in the heart emotionally. 
It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Come to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Came to this bush, sits down under it, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Lays down in the bush, falls asleep. All at once an angel touched him, said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, then lay down again. Angel Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he then travels 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he goes into a cave and he spends the night. We've talked about this passage before, but I want to focus on this a little bit here. An angel shows up and you'd think, you know, great tidings of good joy or whatever else, you know, or, or some word of knowledge. So instead he just says, get up and eat. There's a spiritual component to providing for our bodies. And there are four features that I want to just draw to your attention real quickly of what comes to this man who has had this great victory, but now is, is, is following that with this sense of oppression and assault. And the first thing that God provides for is not anything but the practical aspect of proper care for his body. Get up and eat. You got a journey. You got something to do. Proper food, proper exercise. And providing for our bodies. The second thing that happens, we've talked about before, he ends up in a cave. And as he ends up in that cave, because he's still just, his body's feeling better, but he's still caught with this sense of loss from the mountaintop experience into this deep valley that he's fallen into. And, and God calls him out to the front of the cave. And I love this moment to me. It's just fantastic where he's called forth. And God says, what are you doing here? And he begins to complain. Nobody is out there helping you. And I've been zealous and they're going to kill me. And his life sucks, you know, and he just gets complaining. And then um, he says, come to the mouth of the cave and watch. And he has, you know, a fire come by. And God's not in the fire, earthquake. He's not in the earthquake, wind. He's not in the wind, all these tremendous things. But then there's this quiet whisper. And he hears the voice of God. We need to only have proper care for our body in those situations and make provision, whether it's exercise, food, sleep, whatever the case is. But there's then a, a fresh revelation from God that's provided. This fresh revelation, this new way of hearing God, this new way of approaching God. Right from that point, as he complains again, um, then God tells him that he has a mission for him. and He's supposed to go and anoint two different people kings. One is going to be the king of the enemy. One is going to be the king of Israel. But he's to anoint them and plan for the future. And then he's also supposed to find this kid named Elisha. He's to throw his cloak over him, which is to signal that he's going to be passing on his mantle, his authority onto this guy. And so we see a proper care for the body. We see a fresh revelation from God. We see a renewed mission. He's got stuff to do yet to get these two kings who are going to control. And these two kings between the two of them, it's made clear later that they are going to basically eliminate those who are not serving God. They're going to be used as, as an assault upon those who are not serving God to purify the nation, one from the inside, one from the outside. He's got this renewed sense of mission. And then finally, a faithful friend and a companion is provided. He has this companionship and this friend in Elisha. I, I love the fact that he always says that there's 7,000. I've said this I don't know how many times in some of the times that have gotten me d disturbed or down. They seem to say there's 7,000 who have not yet bent their knee to Baal. Baal was a horrible God that demanded horrible things of people. 
And, and the wording that's used there is worship. They did not kiss him. The term worship means to kiss the face of. When you're singing songs, when you're giving of your tithes and your offerings, when you're spending time, whether it's an Osborne or a simple thing like decorations that may draw people in and they give them a greater sense, whatever that is, it's offered up to God. It's an act of worship, but it means coming face to face and becoming intimate with God. It's not an external thing. It's an intimacy. And he says, there's 7,000 who have not yet bent their knee or kissed the face of Baal. You're not alone. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you have felt alone? Or isolated in these moments of doubt and question? Sometimes even at the pinnacle of success, we can feel that sense of isolation and not having someone to talk to about that or understand that. And so he reinforces for him not only the care for his body, not only fresh revelation from God, not only a renewed sense of mission, not only a faithful friend and companion, but the idea that he's not alone. I think that is a huge issue, and especially during the holiday times. There's so much just to actually stop there. And I, I'm not going to go there, but there's so much that happens at the holiday table nowadays. I mean, you really want to have fun this Christmas? Open up the conversations with just, so where do you stand on the political situation in our nation today? <laughs> and it'll be honestly one of the most memorable holidays that you'll have. <laughs> Elijah comes from this literal mountaintop experience to what appears to be one of the darkest points in his life where he wants to have him, he just wants to be killed. Instead, God provides for his body fresh revelation, a renewed mission, a faithful friend and companion. Now I want to take you to another person real quick we talked about last week. This guy's name is Jonah. You guys all know him. Jonah is only uh, four chapters long in this book. And two of the chapters deal with the people of Nineveh. Two of the chapters really deal directly with Jonah. And I would argue that the entire book actually deals with Jonah. Again, we're not going to just, we're just going to slip past this pretty quickly. But Jonah's asked by God to go and be a prophet to Nineveh, this pretty dark, nasty city. They were bloodthirsty people. They had been horrible enemies to the, uh, um, to the Israelites, had damaged them severely. Jonah would have had friends, family that would have been killed, raped, murdered by these people. And so he doesn't want to go. And so he um, runs away and is on this ship going the opposite direction. And we know how the story goes. I think most of us know it. Uh, but for those that don't, real quickly, he's, he's on there and a storm comes up and, and they're throwing everything overboard to try to lighten up the ship and it's still not working. They realize they're going to die and, and there must be somebody on board that's this angered God or the gods and Jonah finally confesses, yeah, it's me. Throw me overboard, everything will be fine. I mean, this guy is so intent upon not going to the Ninevites, he not only goes in the other direction, but he's willing to die before going. So they throw him overboard and sure enough, everything settles down. And then uh, some creature of some type, undescribed yet fully, comes in and takes hold of him and he ends up inside uh, one of the grossest places I can imagine you being. I remember as a kid seeing the television show, the, the cartoon Pinocchio. 
you know, because I think Pinocchio gets in the same way or, or uh, uh, the Geppetto or whatever it is. And, and they're sitting there with this wooden desk and this little candle inside this great cavern of the, I don't think it was that way at all. It was just, if, it would be closed, it'd be slimy, it would be gross. Your, your skin would be coming, you know, kind of slowly eroded. I mean, it's not a nice place. And so for somehow, for three days, he survives this. And eventually, um, he, he comes to the point where he's willing to do what God does. And he, he's, he's coughed up on the shore. The fish has taken him in the opposite direction and puts him right near Nova. Kind of a weird transport system, you know. I'm not sure you get a ticket on that one or that you'd want to, but he ends up there. So he goes in and he talks to the people of Nineveh. And, and I don't know how he does it. You know, if he's sitting here like prophets, are like, you know, you're all going to die, repent. Or if he's just like, you're going to die, repent. You should repent. I don't know if anybody can hear me because I don't want you to hear me because I don't want you to really repent. I don't want you to be saved, but repent. If he was obnoxious about it, annoying about it, whatever method he used, but what happens is this. The people, over 100,000 of them, actually turn from their ways. And they actually repent from this foreign prophet. And they, they go to sackcloth and ashes. They try to start. And, and so in verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And it goes on to verse 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the God, to the Lord, is this not, is, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and compassionate God. And he's angry saying that. That's not a positive for him. You are a gracious and compassionate God, darn you. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And here's where he goes, verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. This guy had a serious hate problem. He goes out, he sits down to a place east of the city, and he makes him a shelter there. He sits in the shade and waits to see what happened. And the Lord says that he provides a, a leafy plant and makes it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And so he's sitting there, and he goes outside the city, and he stares, waiting for it to blow up. Kill him, God. Kill him all. Anytime, God, I'm waiting. Kill him. You said you'd kill him. You promised you'd kill these people for what they did. You'd kill them. Sun's beating down on them. It's getting pretty rough. And so there's a plant that grows up. God provides for it, and it shades him. A miracle grow? I don't know. Pops up. He's like, wow, pretty good. Kill them, Lord. I'm waiting for them to die. Then God sends a worm to kill the plant. So now the plant dies, and he's really upset over the plant being killed. And God uses that moment. He says, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend to make it grow. Spring up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? He wanted to end of a destroyed, no mercy. Jonah's contempt for the very divine compassion that he himself so desperately needed. And God takes him from the victory that he has of being the most successful prophet practically that you see in Scripture. And one of the few times Gentiles are actually reached with the gospel. One of the very few times that we see that in Scripture. 
arguably one of the most successful that you'll ever see. He goes from that to being his own worst enemy. The parting shot is from God. You care more about plants than you do people. You care more about that plant than you do people. You would withhold the very grace that should be given to these people that you yourself live in and exist and live by. Sometimes our successful moments and the difficulty that comes afterwards is not from the enemy and opponent. Sometimes it's God himself because we haven't handled that success properly. Or we don't understand the implications of it fully. And so he resets our priorities and reshapes our thinking and our processes. There's something I read recently. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the artist Toby Mac. Anybody? Toby Mac had a, uh, had a son who just died recently. I don't know if you heard of that. Kid evidently was a brilliant musician. His name was Truett. Um, he died recently after his very first concert ever. He was given at the factory in Nashville. Some of us have been at that place before. It's just a mall area. And so his first musical expression ever in a public setting of his own concert, evidently it was a huge success. Toby goes on his tour, and within a couple of days, uh, found out he's died. The, the cause of death hasn't been given yet. In his eulogy to his son, he wrote this, Truett always had a soft spot for God. The Bible moved him. His heart was warm to the things of his king. He was by no means a cookie-cutter Christian, but give me a believer who fights to keep believing. Give me a broken man who recognizes his need for a savior every time. My last moment with Truett in person was at his first show this past Thursday at the factory in Franklin, Tennessee. He talks about having to leave and how wonderful and how everyone was full of joy and, 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 and how beautiful it was. And then he puts this at the end of it. My wife and I want the world to know this. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him. Like we'll follow you if you bless us. That's transactional Christianity and we'll discuss that another time. We follow God because we love him. It's our honor. He is the God of the hills and the valleys. And he is beautiful above all things. He is beautiful above all things. The God of the hills and the valleys. And, and you've, we've sung this song here. And Torin Wells wrote this beautiful song. You know, on the mountains I will bow my life to the one who set me there. In the valley I'll lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain top, I, can't, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley end, no, I'm not alone. You're God of the hills and the valleys. Hills and the valleys, God of the hills and the valleys, and I am not alone. And I saw an article written by this guy recently, and they listed a number of scriptures, he said, that were relevant to this. I was surprised to find that the most significant one wasn't referenced. And it has to have us go back to Elijah's time period and to the king of that time period, Ahab. And um, in that, just that same period we just discussed of Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23, they're in a, in a fight between, uh, with the, the, the king of Aram. And because they'd lost an earlier battle against the Israelites, the officials are saying their God basically is a God of the hills. 
They put plural because they don't understand, but of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. In verse 28, a prophet or a man of God comes up and tells the king of Israel. He's not known who this is, whether it's Elisha or Elijah or some unknown prophet. He says, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I'll deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. He is the God of the hills and the valleys because he is the God of everything. And these guys that thought that they could win because they'd hit it on the plains instead of in the, in the hills lost out entirely in the process. Whether we find ourselves in the mountaintop experience, I guarantee you to watch out, that you need to watch out for the Parthian shot. Whether that comes from the opponent trying to take one last hit, even as they're retreating, even as that battle has been won, to hit you in the heart, to cause you to lose heart, or whether it's God requiring an adjustment of our heart and of our mindset and our mentalities. That we are careful in how we deal with triumph and disaster. That we realize most of life is lived in the middle. That God is the God of the hills and the valleys, and whether it's the hilltop or it's a low spot, that he's present there in the midst of that. And the thing that we need to be doing is keeping our eyes fixed upon him. And so realize this, when things are going great, walk with humility. When things go bad, stay steadfast. Christ himself was one of the ones we talked about that dealt with things. He has the Passover. Passover dinner that, that everyone for, year, for centuries had been waiting upon and he, he gives the definition of what it is to point to him on the cross. And, and probably the most significant moment you can imagine spiritually and emotionally and otherwise with the guys. They're all gathered together. Thanksgiving dinner. And really that's what it was. That was the, it was a Jewish Thanksgiving dinner. And, and they're gathered together and there couldn't have been a more intense moment spiritually or otherwise. Talk about a mountaintop experience. In Jerusalem. And then it's right after that that the crucifixion happens and everyone's plunged into despair. Then it's not too long after that the resurrection happens and everyone's not only lifted up but they pin their future upon that action and it encourages them on everything else they do going forward. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. It's so weird. The, 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 the most significant celebration of the most important victory that's ever been done involves blood and body broken. I just think that's at least ironic. maybe sobering. <laughs> Everyone who rushes to be a follower of Christ so that their sins can be forgiven, so they can walk with freedom and grace, and they don't realize the price that's paid, they don't realize that our key celebration is, is one of, of, of loss and death that also is turned into victory
Anyone who thinks that living life before Christ is like one mountaintop to the next mountaintop to the next mountaintop with our feet never touching the dirt. What book are you reading? But if your thought also is that it's only in the valleys because we'll have life in the next world, it'll all be... No, God makes provision for us here. The angel comes to Elijah and feeds him there. Fresh revelations given to him. A sense of renewed mission. A companion. And thousands of others that stand behind him. The enemy thinks that they can beat you on this. They can't win you on this playing field, so they'll switch the playing field. doesn't matter what playing field they go to. God's there. But we don't worship him because of some transaction that if I do what you say and I'm good, that all my life's going to be wonderful. We worship him because he's beautiful and we love him. And whether it's in a hill or a valley or a cave, fire from heaven, plants that die, challenges to our own heart, he's God. And grace and salvation comes from his hand alone. So in the midst of victory, watch out for what can happen. But even in there, there's always a song of hope. Always. That song was playing all the way through the crucifixion. All the way through those three days. It couldn't be heard too well, but it was playing. And then it burst out loud at the resurrection. Our communion is an open community. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake. We do ask that you hold the bread and the cup until we all take together. And you do need to have made a commitment to Christ. You need to understand what it means to repent of your sin, to accept the grace and the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And if you walked that line and accepted that or do that even now, then you can join us in this. If not, then just let it pass you by. Set it aside. Father, I pray for those who found victory last week but found that there was a challenge that came right after that, that they would not be dismayed, that they'd have an understanding now and would be encouraged despite that. Lord, for those who are still riding on that high or whatever it is that they've, they've had in this season of time, let them have an awareness and a humility. God, I pray even as we receive this bread and this cup today that we'd contemplate our own position before you. I thank you for your grace and your provision both in the great times of the mount and also in the dark and difficult times. Remind us then particularly that you're there. In your name I pray. Amen. As we go into this holiday season, make time for God in the midst of that. Whether it's in your private time of prayer and encouragement, but also gather together. We need one another. Easter's right around the corner. Summertime's coming up. Life moves fast. Don't lose sight. Whether on the hilltop or in the valley, don't lose sight. 
God, I thank you for your provision, your grace. Guide us, I pray, and shape us as your people as we go forward in this world that you have set to claim. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, amen. God bless you.